Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 14 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 6th of May. And Leon, we're talking to Andrew Brown, the Chief Operating Officer of Jagannell. That's right. Jagannell is Australia's most advanced office space search engine. And it's really, it's a really radical business, taking up a huge amount of the market. Really, it's a, and it's just amazing what it does to uh, real estate advertising. So let's just have a chat to Andrew Brown. Andrew Brown, you're the Chief Operating Officer of a new company called Jagannall, which bids fair to disrupt the uh, office space real estate market, I would guess. Tell us about the company and where it began. Um, so Jagannall, the company was started by th- the three founders. Um, we used to work for the REA group, being uh, realestate.com.au. Now, it began by, well, being inside that, uh, that big uh, corporate company where a lot of the focus there was at uh, was on realestate.com.au, the actual uh, re- uh, residential portal. Um, but they also have a sister site to that being Real Commercial. Now, that is the market leader in this space for online office portals. So having worked there and uh, watching the business focus there, being very heavily uh, focused on the residential website, not a lot of attention going to the commercial side of things. So having uh, listened and uh, speaking to either being the tenants who use these websites to the industry um, being agents, the owners, uh, maybe the tenant representatives who look after those blue chip clients who are sort of the sticky users on these websites, they're all complaining about the user experience and the, the lack of detail and information to those sites. So there was a real gap there, a real need, uh, and hence uh, as a, any disruptor would come in and said, well, let's go and build a product that uh, you know, works for everybody. So how exactly does the product work? The product works um, by, well, there's in terms of searching for office spaces, um, well, firstly, it's a dedicated office search. So it's very powerful in that it has over 50 different office uh, search types and features. Um, three sort of main criteria on how you can search. Uh, option one is that uh, we have a very comprehensive checklist of, as I said, over 50 search criterias and that I can search by maybe a building grade, by street locations, uh, by features which are important to those end users, um, such as bike racks, you know, does it have showers, etc. We also have a another option which is like a Google-style search where literally you can type in your commercial brief and then we match the results based on that commercial search brief that's typed in. So to give some examples to that, I could say, I'm after a small office, uh, you know, really generic, or I'm after a budget office in Sydney CBD for five people. So being able to have the power of that kind of search, it works really well for particularly those tenant representatives uh, because they do have their brief um, from those big blue chip companies with all their requirements. So the tenant rep takes that brief, types it like a free text into our search, and then, as I said, we match results to the brief. And then our option three um, for searching for offices is that we've gone and built full 3D cities. Um, now, why did we go and build 3D cities? Well, it works really well for perhaps that overseas investor who's looking to buy um, commercial property here, or they may be uh, you know, looking to move uh, across in, into a big space, uh, so something for lease. 
by the 3D, they can hunt around the city, get a feel of the landscape. Um, they can click on a building. Uh, they can look out of a building to get full 3D view perspectives um, to see if, you know, this building I'm interested in is uh, I'm all about views. Uh, you know, can I see maybe the Sydney Harbour Bridge? Is there a building in front of me? Am I obstructed by my views? It really just helps tick all those boxes. Uh, it also may be a decision maker to say, well, I am a, I'm a law firm and, you know, please, you know, I'm hunting around and I want to see the landscape. Where are the other law firms in the 3D city? So, again, lots of different ways of searching and a lot of powerful tools to that, that end user using the website. This would actually seriously challenge the whole real estate advertising market, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, and that's, and that's what we're looking to do. Um, as I say, it was something was needed. Too much focus is uh, by all of our competitors. Their main focus is on those residential sites. They have created those sister sites, which are these commercial sites, but no focus is really going on them. And then I just feel, we just feel that the tenants aren't being looked after, looking for those offices. And then the industry themselves, um, it's just not a tool uh, that they use. I mean, they're tending to do their business more offline, which just seems quite crazy in this day and age. How do you assemble your client list from the, the real estate side? Do you go out cold calling? Not cold calling. Uh, well, two ways, really. I mean, we started off this, uh, this um, business by... We set up a newsletter. Uh, we call it Up at Sparrows, and it goes to market uh, first um, at 5.30 every morning. Now, that goes to all the owners, the tenant representatives. Um, it goes to the agents. And what we're doing through that newsletter is really, you know, sharing all the, the stories, important information about this commercial market, um, and then slip in some, some details about Jagannall as well. So it's kind of like our channel to talk to the market. Um, so that's been really um, well accepted. Um, we have over two and a half thousand contacts on that mail list. It has like a 43% open rate, which is actually huge for a newsletter. And then off the back of the success of that newsletter, then yes, we send in some some BDMs and such and then go in and touch base, talk about then the main product off the back of that being jagonall.com.au. And then all, automatically we're being accepted in. And I guess due to, you know, everybody wanting that new product uh, everyone's been open doors and really letting us in and yeah things are taking off really nicely how what's your business model how do you, do you clip the ticket on the way through or share the um, a real estate agent's commission how does that work no i mean it's nothing like that it's just basically we are a um an advertising portal so any listing that's advertised on our website we get paid per the listing there's no there's no other side commissions and this and that it's just a you want to advertise your office contact jagonal we'll put it up there i mean obviously at a, at a fixed rate just to talk about some pricing as well um we have come in with a different model uh, to again our competitors in that the competitors are working off, say, subscription models, and you may be advertising your office. It doesn't matter what the size of the office. It could be a 50-square-metre space to a full floor plate. Pricing could be around between, say, six and $9,000 to put that advertisement up on you know, those portals. Now, what those uh, portals are as well, those listings, they're essentially like uh, classified ads. So imagine you're sort of in newspapers, your print classified ad, it's really taking those and then they've just slapped them on the web. You know, we've gone a lot deeper than that in that 
I can put a, I might have, I might be looking or an agency or an owner might be looking to put their building up on Jagannal. You know, there's different office suites available to that advertisement. So we go and split out all those individual listings because the individual listings, they have different um, prices due to, you know, one may have views where one down in the basement doesn't. Um, they have different features. They have different area sizes. Um, so we've gone and, we, as I say, we split them out. Um, I can also advertise, just say I have that full floor plate. Uh, I can advertise it and be found for, you know, a large space, or it can be found by subdividing that space. So it might be a 1,000 square metres, but it has a subdivision option of, say, 200 square metres. So I can advertise it by that 200 square metres. And then if I'm to search, I can find it under 200 square metres. I can find it under 400 square metres. 600, 800,000, etc. So it's really giving a lot of uh, exposure to that advertisement. And there's no extra cost for sort of splitting out the listings and no extra cost for subdividing. So a lot of value there. Okay. I mean, that, that sounds very, very competitive. Now, sorry, I'm... just just one last point on that yeah, as well. Sure. Sorry. I just um, also, I mean, due to and then the cost of that, we charge, so it's basically by per square meter. Um, by the jagonal rate, where we have an introductory rate at the moment, which is two cents, by the days on market. So then by that, by that square meters that we're pricing it based on, we've opened this up to new markets. So now the likes of a hot desk or a co-working space or a serviced office, they all now have an option to advertise their small spaces on, on jagonal, which again, we've found that a lot of that market's been doing business offline because they just can't afford those you know, six to $9,000 um, advertisement fees. Sure, sure. Now, uh, I haven't heard of any model quite like this. Is there anything like this in the world? Not that we've seen. Uh, we're very different, you know, very innovative company. We want, we're here to disrupt. Uh, I mean, we, we are generally, uh, you know, this has been brought together by tech guys, really. Um, you know, we've all been in this, uh, I guess, the real estate space for a long time uh, between uh, me and my two co-founders for, say, over 12 years, um, just in online real estate. So um, we have a lot of experience in this. And, yeah, I haven't seen anything quite like it. So potentially you could take this globally. Well, that's the plan. Uh, so very much we've got our foothold here in Australia, which is where we're all based. Um, but very much uh, the, the next focus over the next couple of months actually is to go to uh, Southeast Asia uh, because, we're I mean, just in Southeast Asia alone, it's a $400 million market. And then if we open this up to go globally, uh, you know, it's a $6 billion market. So a lot of opportunity. So we're all about expansion. Uh, as I said, Australia was our start. We've built the products, um, everything's ready to go. So now our next focus over the next uh, sort of one to two months is that we are going overseas. Singapore being that first uh, place we'll go to, um, it'll be a great launch pad for us into South Asia, Southeast Asia. Yeah, Asia would be a very big market for you, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Uh, we've also had a lot of inquiries from uh, other countries. Um, we've had a lot of inquiries from the US, a couple of touch points over in um, Hong Kong. Um, and even though as Singapore, as we're saying, uh, we've had some agencies over there chasing us saying, look, <laughs> when are you coming here? We'd love to pay for listings now. We're just sort of saying, look, let us, we're coming. <laughs> well, I'm sure Malcolm Turnbull will love it. You're very innovative. Thank you, Andrew, for your time. And Thanks very much. Big advertising change, isn't it? I mean, there's a guy getting all the information from the market, 
putting it up there and facilitating sales. That's right. And just Correct. and just think of what that does to outfits like realestateaustralia.com or think of what it does to uh, uh, advertising supplements in papers like The Age. Well, that's right. You know, that, that's, that bottle's emptied. So now, Saul Eslake, and he's talking about... The budget, and uh, he has very strong views about it. Let's talk to Saul. Saul Leslake, the budget this week was not exactly a jobs and growth document. Uh, what impact do you think it will have on the economy? Well, I think it will have a marginally positive impact on the economy in the near term, but very little medium term impact at all and very little impact at all in dealing with the problem which, when it came to office, the coalition identified as its number one priority, namely the budget deficit and the level of public debt. We're now, according to the latest estimates, going to be running budget deficits until 2021-22, and net debt is going to peak at a new record high of 19.2% of GDP in the 2017-18 fiscal year. That's more than a percentage point above the previous record set in the last year of the Keating government, 1995-96. And it's about seven percentage points above the peak portrayed in Wayne Swan's last budget in 2013-14, in 2013, which the coalition at the time derided as representing a debt disaster, a budget emergency, and putting Australia on the path to Greece. Now, of course, we were never on the path to Greece back then, and we're certainly not on the path to Greece now. But it just does illustrate how the importance of getting the budget on a sustainable trajectory back to surplus has diminished as a key objective of the government since the effort they made in twenty in their first budget in 2014. How is it that we seem to be so hooked into deficits? Well, I think the answer is in decisions that were taken in the last two terms of the Howard government and the first term of the previous Labor government. During that period, as the Parliamentary Budget Office has clearly documented, so-called parameter variations, that is, for the most part, unforeseen windfall revenue gains that came to us courtesy of the commodities boom generated by China and the property and share price boom we were experiencing at the time between about 2002 and the onset of the financial crisis boosted revenues by a total of about $222 billion. During that period, governments of both political persuasions took decisions to cut taxes by a total of $95 billion and to increase spending, principally by creating a whole raft of new welfare entitlement programs by a total of $195 billion. And I hope listeners will realise that $195 billion plus $95 billion adds up to more than $222 billion. In, in other words, all of the revenue gains from that period were, and more, were dissipated. Since commodity prices peaked in 2011 and continuing through to this budget, revenues have fallen short of previous expectations. Initially, because of the impact of falling commodity prices on the revenue collected through company tax and lower asset prices 
on the revenue collected through capital gains taxes and from superannuation funds. More recently, it's been largely because of the impact of slower growth in prices and wages on the revenues of companies and hence company tax collections. And of course, most importantly, on personal income tax collections, as fewer people find themselves pushed into higher marginal tax brackets. And as I say, that has continued through to the present budget. But far from unwinding some of the decisions that were made during that earlier, much more carefree era when revenue continually survived on the upside, governments have, for the most part, maintained those tax cuts and increased welfare handouts, though successive governments have tried to trim them here and there. And of course, new programs have been introduced that are very expensive, such as the National Disability Insurance Program, increased funding for schools, and under this government, increased funding for defence and for defence equipment procurement. And all of those things against a background which has been much more difficult for revenues than it was prior to the financial crisis has created this situation where Australia's budget will now have been in deficit for almost 17 years on current projections, the longest period of underlying budget deficits Australia's had since current records began in the 1960s. That's quite extraordinary. Now, one of the most interesting and probably the best part of the budget is the changes to super. What's your assessment of that? Well, whether you regard them as the best part probably depends on your particular perspective. For high-income households and super and people with fairly large superannuation funds, uh, the budget contains some bad news. People with incomes of in excess of 250000 are now going to join those with incomes of over 300000 taxable in paying 30% tax on their pre-tax contributions to superannuation funds rather than 15%. That's a fair enough message because the 15% contributions tax rate is very generous to people whose incomes put them in the top tax bracket that's currently 49%. People will be able to no longer be able to contribute more than 500000 over the course of their lifetimes to their superannuation funds. And again, there are not a lot of people who are in a position to do that, but the people who are will be pretty disappointed. And in in a move that is in some ways retrospective, people with superannuation balances of more than 1.6 million, and again, we're not talking about a lot of Australians here, will now find themselves exposed to the 15% tax on the earnings of that part of their funds that exceeds 1.6 million, whereas heretofore they would have expected to be able to shift that amount entirely into the retirement phase of a superannuation fund and have no tax payable on at all. Now, as I say, those measures are all readily defensible on equity grounds, and the government has used some of the revenue they're picking up through those measures to improve the ability of people on low incomes to contribute in a tax-advantaged way to superannuation, and also to make it easier for people with fragmented working lives, and that's particularly women who take time out of the workforce to care for children or elderly relatives to make up for their inability to contribute to superannuation during those periods when they're out of the workforce. And so attempt to do something about the fact that women typically reach retirement age with much lower superannuation balances than men. And so all of those measures, I think, though painful for some, uh, I think can be put on the good side of the ledger. 
nonetheless, I mean, Credit Suisse today is saying that uh, this will affect uh, self-managed super funds. It will also see people investing their money instead of into their super, into property, which will force up property prices. Uh, yes, and uh, that's the other side of the ledger. I mean, it does hit people with self-managed super funds because it's meant to. That's the intention of the objective. But I think an unintended consequence of the uh, measures, and the government likes to talk about unintended consequences when it comes to proposals to alter negative gearing, is that people in this position who can't put additional money into superannuation or would find doing so disadvantageous from a tax point of view, or who are thinking what to do with that part of their superannuation balances that exceed $1.6 million, may well think that negative gearing offers them a better prospect of return. What the government's also effectively saying to taxpayers with incomes of under taxable incomes of under $80,000 is you're not going to get a tax cut. Uh, so if you want to pay less tax, go and get yourself a negatively geared property investment. And of course, the government likes to say that people with taxable incomes of under 80000 are the only ones who are actually doing negative gearing, which is, of course, not true, but suits their propaganda purposes. So uh, one of the things that I find worrying about the budget and more broadly in the government's approach to these things is that they almost seem to be encouraging people to go further into negatively geared property investment at a time when interest rates may be at their cyclical low and property prices may be approaching a, cycl uh, a cyclical high. So that could put them in a potentially perilous financial position. The other thing is, I feel you have to ask, is it really in Australia's interests? Is it really smart policy to be encouraging a nation which already has the world's most heavily indebted households relative to income and some of the world's most expensive residential real estate to borrow more money in the expectation that that real estate will become even more expensive. That just doesn't seem to me to be the smartest thing to be doing. Well, uh, Scott Morrison actually made a point during his budget speech yesterday of uh, alluding to negative gearing, and he said there's no way we're going to touch it because uh, it affects people on $80,000. Uh, well, indeed, and there are, to be sure, a lot of people with taxable incomes of less than $80,000 who have negatively geared property investments, although that's because the vast majority of Australian taxpayers uh, have incomes of less than $80,000. The proportion of taxpayers with incomes of taxable incomes of less than $80,000 who have a negatively geared property investment is barely a third of the proportion of Australians with taxable incomes in the top tax bracket. And that presents a very different picture from the one which the Treasurer and property interests like to make with regards to negative gearing. The interesting thing is that the budget unashamedly, and in my view, correctly, picks out three taxation measures that the Labor Party has long advocated, namely the increase in excise on cigarettes over the next four years, a much tougher strategy with regard to efforts by multinational companies to reduce their tax, and some of the superannuation tax changes that we've just been discussing. These were all ideas that originally came from the Labor Party, and I give the government credit for picking them up. It's just kind of interesting that they pick up some ideas but then deride with such intensity and passion, and I would say supported by so little evidence, 
a different idea that comes from the Labor Party, namely with regard to negative gearing. Now, I'm not saying that I agree with every aspect of Labor's policy with regard to negative gearing. I've got some significant reservations about a couple of aspects of it. But I'd nonetheless say that what they're proposing would represent a significant improvement on the arrangements we currently have in our tax system with regard to the treatment of property investment. So, Liz Lake, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, that's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Well, there you go, Liam. What do you think about that? I think it's a really, really good point of view and his views about negative gearing are really strong. Yeah, very interesting. Now, the news. Well, Gary, first of all, Chinese steel and iron ore futures slumped this week after a private sector survey showed momentum in the country's giant manufacturing sector had not kept pace with the recent rally in commodity prices. The Kaiji Manufacturing PMI for April came in worse than expected, falling in 0.3 points to 49.4 points, and followed a similar fall by the government's official PMI released on Sunday. And that soft reading indicates that Chinese commodity markets, where speculators have been bidding up prices in recent recent weeks have run ahead of what's actually going on in the manufacturing sector and that's a very bad sign for the Chinese economy. Yeah, so China continues as the big worry for uh, uh, most of the world. That's right. And while we're on the subject of China, Gary, the Chinese-led consortium that wanted to buy the giant S. Kidman and company property business has pulled its $370 million bid and entered into discussions with the Kidman board. And what they've done is that they have struck a deed of agreement with their partners, Australian Rural Capital and Kidman, and they will consider another bid and trying to get it past the Australian government. But of course, the Australian government had knocked it back on Friday. Uh, uh, Treasurer Scott Morrison gave a cons- uh, told the consortium it wasn't in the national interest. Uh, it's not in Barnaby Joyce's interest, really. That's right. That's right. Well, anyway, uh, all indications are they will wait until after the election till they get it up again. Yeah, it's probably not a question of money, it's just a question of politics. Now, big story of the week was that the RBA has cut the cash rate to a record low of 1.75% in a bid to head off falling prices and an economic downturn. And economists are tipping more rate cuts on the horizon. Uh, the Australian dollar fell more than a cent to uh, US 75.80 cents. That's down from 77.17 on the news. And I mean, that was that was quite amazing. And of course, it causes a problem for retirees, and that's a large chunk of the market. Well, that cut, the first in a year, came less than a week after a shock dropping core inflation to well below the central bank's 2 to 3% target band. That is quite significant. And of course, that level of uh, inflation is going to remain there for some time. So economists are saying they're going to do it again. Yeah, and I really can't see it doing much more than put it, pushing the price, uh, price of houses up. Well, yes, yes. Well, let's let's take a let's take a look at that. Of course, all that coincided with Treasurer Scott Morrison's first budget, which aims to cut company tax for all businesses to 25% within a decade. The 10-year plan to cut the 30% company tax rate to 25% will start with small and medium-sized businesses. So from the 1st of July, which is, wouldn't you know, the day before the federal election, the tax rate for businesses with a turnover up to 10 million will be cut to 27.5%. That's another one percentage point reduction for small businesses with an annual turnover of less than 2 million. They already had a 1.5 percentage point tax cut last year. And these businesses 
users also will have access to a $20,000 write-off scheme. The budget also increases the income tax deduction for unincorporated businesses from 5% to 8%, but it will be capped at $1,000 per business. Now, significantly, businesses will have to do the heavy lifting with a proportion of tax paid by big corporations increasing from 24% of total this financial year to 26% by 2020. But at the same time, the budget sees a big business contribution coming from multinationals involved in tax avoidance, and special measures will see the multinationals paying an additional $3.9 billion in tax over the next four years, and the government's going to be spending $679 million employing specialists at the ATO as part of a tax avoidance task force. And the government is not ignoring the big end of town. The budget will increase the eligibility threshold to cover all businesses, large, small and medium. The threshold for the 27.5% tax rate will rise from $10 million to $25 million in July 2017 to $50 million in 2018-19 and then $100 million in 2019-20. And the plan is to keep raising that 27.5% corporate tax uh, threshold until all businesses are covered by 2023-24 and by 2026-27, assuming the government's still around, corporate tax rate will be lowered to 25% for all businesses. And Mr Morrison estimated these measures would cost $5.3 billion over the next four years, but was confident the budget's revenue measures, which includes a which includes that crackdown on multinational tax avoidance, will offset that. And other revenues measures, including the budget, increase, include an increase in tobacco excise, raising $4.7 billion over the forward estimates, a diverted profit tax to stop multinationals from siphoning profits offshore, which will raise $650 million, and changes to superannuation tax concessions that aim to curb revenue loss by about $3 billion. I think certainly dropping the uh, company tax is a good move. Also, according to the budget figures, Australia will not be returning to surplus until at least 2020-21. And the budget will st- is still $6 billion in deficit in 2019-20, which is about the same amount last year's budget forecast for 2018-19. And this year's budget forecast that by 2018-19 will be more than $15 billion in the red. And both this current year's financial deficit and the 2016 deficit have also been blown out from the levels forecast only four months ago in December's mid-year economic and fiscal outlook. The 2015-16 deficit will now be under $40 billion, or $2.5 billion higher than, than the MIFO. And the 2016-17 deficit is forecast to be $37.1 billion. That's up $3.4 billion. Significantly, two years ago, the infamous 2014 budget forecast an almost negligible deficit of $10 billion. And now, now we're up around 37 so nearly four times as much. Yeah, Mark, you, that $10 billion was pie in the sky. That's right. So, but it's illustrating how far the government that once promoted itself as a fiscal fireman has allowed deficits to get out of control. Also, the federal budget has the most sweeping changes to the nation's superannuation system, which will see wealthy Australians paying more tax on their super, while those at the other end of the wage scale will pay less. And the measures are expected to provide a net gain of $2.9 billion over four years. The budget introduces a transfer balance cap of $1.6 million on amounts moving moving into the tax-free retirement phase. The income tax threshold at which individuals are charged a higher 30% contributions tax rates has been lowered from 300000 to 250000 a year, but that 30% rate is a 17% discount to the highest marginal tax rate. It also reduces the annual cap on concessional superannuation contributions to 25000 and, in a surprise move, it replaces the annual after-tax super contributions limit with a lifetime limit of $500,000. That's actually important, Gary, because it actually stops people channeling windfall payments if, say, they sell their house into their super. 
the idea of multi-million dollar super funds has uh, kind of died on the vine. Kiss goodbye to that. And the budget also introduces a low-income superannuation tax offset from the 1st of July 2017. That allows anyone earning up to $37,000 to receive a refund into their super account of the tax paid on their concessional contributions. That's up to a cap of $500, which is really important for women returning into the workforce. Absolutely. Also, the budget seeks to tackle bracket creep by providing tax relief for Australians earning more than $80,000. As was widely canvassed, the government will increase the upper limit of the middle income tax bracket from $80,000 to $87,000. And this aims to insulate 500,000 taxpayers moving into the 37% marginal tax bracket in 2016-17. That's going to cost the government $4 billion over the next four years to provide taxpayers with a, wait for it, $6.6 tax cut a week. $6.06, and it will be funded by tobacco smokers with four 12.5% per annum excise increases, raising more than $4.7 billion over four years. And it also coincides with the planned withdrawal of a two-year deficit levy of 2% on every dollar earned over $180,000. Yeah, so you get a $6 tax cut, which will buy smokers about three cigarettes. This budget is appalling for wealthy retirees and chain smokers. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the budget summary. And also, the Dun & Bradstreet April Business Expectations Survey found the business gloom is on the rise. It found another drop in expectations with businesses maintaining gloomy forecasts for three months to 30th of September 2016. Now, the Business Expectation Index, which is the average of the survey's measures of sales, profits, employment, capital investment, plummeted 9.6 points for the third quarter of 2016. That's down from 12.7 points for the second quarter of 2016 and 17.6 points in the third quarter of 2015. And what's really alarming, Gary, is the Actuals Index, which reports on how much a companies are making and what they're planning, also experienced a sharp fall. And that went down five points uh, compared to 12.7 points last quarter. And that brings to an end three consecutive quarters of growth in Actuals. And the worst affected sectors were retail, transport and communications and utilities, and the construction sectors. And that's a bit of a worry, Gary. Yeah, particularly the construction sector. Well, everybody thought it was doing well. Yeah, I think I think it's a real issue. I think it's a re- and it's a danger signal. Now, the banks are reporting their profits, and Westpac kicked off the banking reporting season, pricing a profit of three point nine billion. That's up three percent. Alarmingly, the bank reported more bank loans. Westpac Chief Executive Brian Hartzer said the bank's institutional investment division was affected by significantly higher impairment charges relating to four big loans, which added $252 million in bad debt. Now, Westpac didn't actually disclose where the bad loans were made, but UBS analysts say the bank needed to make provisions for bad loans to failed steelmaker Arium, bankrupt miner Peabody Energy, law firm Slatter and Gordon, and transport company McAloose. And bag debts rose to $667 million in the six months to March. Westpac said it would pay a $0.94 cent interim dividend. That's totally flat with the 2015 final dividend. Bloomberg have been um, 
tipping 97 cents. That's right. Now, ANZ's cash profit has fallen 24% to $2.8 billion and taking $717 million out of net charges relating to repositioning the bank for strong growth in the future, ANZ also announced that it slashed its dividend 7% to $0.80, cents, down from $0.86. Cents. This is the first time ANZ has cut its dividend since the global financial crisis. And the bank said, excluding one-off items, the pro forma cash profit was $3.5 billion, which is down 5, 4%, and bad debts which is the item the market is looking for, came out to $918 million. And the final bit of news, Gary, is that embattled law firm Slater & Gordon has reached an 11th hour agreement with the bankers, led by National Australia Bank and, of course, Westpac, buying it two years to avoid bankruptcy. And the agreement came with lenders spreading the firm's $830 million worth of debt over three years, creating a semi-annual amortisation of its loans, which will convert the law firm's cases into cash to pay down the debts and the loans will be refinanced in two tranches 480 million maturing in 2018 and another 360 million paid back a year later now without that agreement the firm would have had to start paying off its debts this month and so it would have gone bankrupt and the other issue too is that the banks would have had to force a debt to equity swap which would force them to own a law firm, <laughs> a law firm and that law firm is now being subjected to a class action so the banks would be sued yeah. so in a, se- in a <laughs> sense the banks had no choice no choice at all And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. Now, next week. Next week, we've got a terrific interview with um, Ned Moorfield, uh, who has set up a competitor to Uber in Sydney. In the meantime, you can keep that, you can keep up with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizBiz or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.